Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, I've been asked to make an announcement about the senior saints. Uh, the senior saints will not be meeting this week. They will be meeting next week on January the 18th, January the 18th. And so uh, we have a special speaker, uh, Stephen Jossen. Do you know him? Speaking on health issues associated with seniors. And so that is on, uh, September, on January the 18th, not this week. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> we'll begin at verse 1. <clears throat> I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. <clears throat> he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. <clears throat> Till we all come to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plottings, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray together. Father, please help us now. We've gathered together as your people, as your body, and we've gathered around your word, and we ask now, Father, as we study this word, that you would please be with us, and that you would work in our lives, that you would show us things that we need to know, that you would give us grace and that you would help us that we might understand and experience even the unity and the maturity that the Apostle Paul talks about here. Please be with us, we pray, in, in all that we do this hour. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> We're going to look again, excuse me a second. We're going to be looking again at a very, one very long, complex sentence 
Um, we, we got into that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Here in your Bibles, uh, if verses 11 through 16 is, in the original language, one sentence. Now, if you have a New King James Version Bible or a King James Version Bible, it, they retain that. That's one of the strengths of those translations. They retain that. They don't break up Paul's thinking into more than one sentence. But that is actually one complex sentence, and that's what we're going to be sort of focusing on now as we return to the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. And I'm asking this question with all reverence, all due reverence and, and, and such, but I, I want us to, to try to think about this. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you know, after three days after he was crucified, he ascended into heaven after 40 days of meeting with him. He ascended into heaven, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. That has been almost 2,000 years ago. What has Jesus been doing for 2,000 years? Like, what has been occupying his time? What has been his focus? What has been his activity? What has been his ministry? Is he just kind of waiting around until he re the Father tells him it's time to return? What has Jesus been doing? Now, you know some things he's been doing. You know some of them. You know that he's been, you've been talking to him, haven't you? He's, he saved you. He, he gave you a new heart. He, 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 he worked in your life. He's your high priest, and you, you, you bring your request to him. He represents you before the Father, and, and he gives you grace and strength from the throne of grace when you turn to him. You, yeah, so obviously he's been busy. But what has his primary focus been? What is Jesus all about? What has he been all about for 2,000 years? And the answer to that question is his primary focus has been, and I will use his words, I will build my church. I will build my church. Jesus Christ has been in the process for 2,000 years of building his church. It is the most important thing that is going on in the entire world. Jesus is building his church. Now, the Apostle Paul is, is moving in his book here from all of this wonderful and rich understanding and doctrine of what God has done for us in Christ in the first three chapters, and now he's going to draw out all of the implications for that uh, in, 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 in the rest of the, book, book, of the Bible, but, uh, the rest of the book. But what he's doing now is he's drawing out the implications of that for the church, for the church, and he's going to talk about the church and its ministries. Now, I'd like to begin by just simply you're sort of using this to kind of review, because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Ephesians, kind of review a little bit of where, of where, where we've come from. But, but I'll do that in the sense of this. Jesus is now presently building his church. And I'd like to just put it this way to you. He's all in that. Like, this is, this is big for Jesus. This is what he's doing. This is, this is his, his, he's completely engaged in this. And I'll explain to you why that is by looking at a review of what we looked at in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, we, we were told that, that we were blessed with all these spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And he began with the fact that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus chose and adopted a people. God put these people in union with Christ before the foundation of the world. We were put in union with Christ. And therefore, and then... Paul tells us that we were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. 
If we were in union with Christ on the cross, we were redeemed with him on the cross. Uh, but through his death upon the cross, we were there. We were there in a very real way. Our sins were there. Our sins were being punished. Our sins were being forgiven. We were there. He was redeeming these people that had been given to him on the cross. And in fact, the focus of that, if you look at Ephesians 5, the focus, we're going to get to this, is the church. The focus of all that is the church. He was redeeming the church. Look at Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Talk about being all in. He loved the church and he gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And then he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now notice this. He's done all of that for the church. And then the focus comes to the very last day that he on that last day would present himself with this glorious church. Jesus is about building the church. And this is in keeping with God's overall program that we looked at in Ephesians 1 and look at verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one. And I want you to look at that word, one, or think about that or, or pay attention to that. That he's, God is going to gather all things together in one, all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and on earth in him. God is gathering all of this that, that is in union with Christ. God is going to bring it all together in one. That's this idea of building the church. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ then ascends to heaven. So he comes down from heaven to earth. To, he's, he's, we're united with him. He's given a people in heaven. He comes down to earth, and he comes down, and he takes on a human body. We've just celebrated that in Christmas. And he, he takes on a body, and then he dies upon the cross for these people that he has been in union with. He dies on the cross for them. He rises from the dead, and then the Father, in, in, in rewarding him, lifts him far above all principality and power and seats him at his very right hand. And Paul summarized that in actually a prayer, but look at chapter 1 and verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, Jesus will always be the ultimate supreme authority. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to or for the church with a view toward the church. See, he's all in in this church building thing, which is his body. The church is his body. He is the head. It is his body. And then you have this amazing, one of the most amazing statements in the human race has ever heard. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is somehow in some mysterious and beautiful way the fullness of Christ who needs nothing to fill him. And yet he makes us so, so uniquely tied to him that we are his body. We are his fullness. He's the head. The head without a body is, 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 is not unthinkable. He is the head. We are the body. And somehow he has attached himself to us in so many dynamics in so many ways. And we looked at that. And then, of course, in chapter 2, we were told that he took Jews and Gentiles, he took all people, and he made them one new humanity. He broke down the dividing wall, and he made this one new humanity. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, one new humanity from the two, thus making peace. And this new man, this new humanity, this new mankind, this new people, these people that are in the body of Christ, these people that are in union with him, are then described in chapter 2 and verse 19 as members of the household of God, citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in which you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We are the temple of God. We are the people of God. And we are this holy temple. And this is the dwelling place of God on earth. Then the Apostle Paul, in, in, in describing all of that, what God has done, in chapter 4, in verse 7, Paul says this. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also de first descended to the lower parts, even the earth, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so here Paul tells us that Christ, who came, loved, gave himself for his church, died, his dead body was buried, he rose again from the dead, he ascended to the highest place upon earth, he went in that ascension like a conquering victor, and as the conquering victor would have all of the spoils of war, he then gave and poured out upon his church at that point, the Holy Spirit poured upon his church all of these gifts, and he gave gifts to people. And this is because this is Jesus's project. He is now building his church. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. So look at that chapter, in this, the, the chapter 4, verse 7. This is what we looked at uh, three weeks ago. This is the passage we opened up. But notice the idea of grace and gifts. Verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look at the end of verse 8. He gave gifts to men. This idea of Christ giving gifts, giving gifts to men. And that's what Paul is going to take up in now in, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 11, in this long sentence that goes to verse 16. Paul is going to take up this idea of what Christ is doing right now in pouring out these gifts upon the church to build his church for its mission in the world. And so let's look at this uh, passage. Verse 11. And he himself, Christ Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So here, this is the gifting that he's poured out. This is Now, this is one of many lists of gifts that we have in Scripture. We're going to uh, talk about this in the weeks ahead as we open this up. But here, Paul only focuses on four of these gifts. And actually, he's actually, a lot of commentators say, Paul's not actually talking about gifts here so much as he's talking about gifted individuals. He's talking about people who, who have been put in offices that, that have these gifts and, and are using these gifts. And who are these people? Well, he lists, like I said, four of them here. First, apostles. Who are the apostles? Well, we begin, as we read the Gospels, we begin with the 12 apostles. And that number is very, very important. The 12 apostles. It's symbolic. It's like the new Israel. 
You know, the old Israel, the 12 tribes, the new Israel, we have 12 apostles. And when Judas, one of the 12 apostles, then, then abdicated his role, in Acts chapter 1, they replace him because they know that this idea of the 12 is very important symbolically. And they replace him with a man named Matthias. But what I want us to think about is, how do you replace an apostle? Like, what are the qualifications for an apostle? Well, they gave them to us in Acts chapter 1. When it says this, Acts chapter 1, verse 21, it says this, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So an apostle is somebody who was with Jesus through his entire earthly ministry. Beginning with the bat, from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. So notice, he needed to live with Jesus. No, I saw him. No, I saw him. I saw him teach. No, I saw me. I saw him break the bread and feed the 5,000. I saw all of that. And then I saw him crucified. I saw him buried. I saw him. And after he rose from the dead, I interacted with him. I saw him. I am an official representative and an official witness of the resurrected Christ. That's what an apostle is. And so they chose a man, Matthias. You say, yeah, but there was more apostles then than the 12. Yes, there were. And one of them that we know very well is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul actually talks about himself in being an apostle as one who was born out of due time. He was born in unusual circumstances. And yet, nevertheless, when you read Acts 9, what happens? The Apostle Paul meets Jesus Christ. He falls on the ground. He's blinded for three days. And Jesus personally commissions him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He sees and interacts with the resurrected Christ. That's what it means to be an apostle. And in not only that, but these apostles had an important foundational building of the church, and they were given unique, miraculous, supernatural gifts, what Paul calls the gifts of the apostle, the signs of an apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's apostleship is being challenged by other people, and Paul feels like he has to boast. He says, he has to boast. He feels foolish about it because, you know, he's a very humble man. And, and to him, leadership is humility. And he says this, I have been a fool. I've become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me for I ought to have been commended by you for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Then he said this, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. See, these apostles, and you see them when you're reading the book of Acts, they're, they're healing people, and they're, they, they, they're, they're using, they even raise people from the dead. They, they, there, there were these signs that accompanied this foundational ministry of the apostle as, as, as such to, to authenticate their ministry. And in fact, in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 12, listen to what it says here about the signs of an apostle that Paul had. It says, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Isn't that amazing? By the way, do you know where Acts 19 is taking place? Ephesus. Ephesus. You could take Paul's handkerchief and you could touch somebody with it and they would be healed of their diseases because it was the Apostle Paul's. Somebody could be demon-possessed, and what do you do? I guess you throw the handkerchief at him. And the demon leaves because of Paul's handkerchief hit the guy. This is the signs of an apostle. 
And these are foundation builders. These are building the foundation of the church. And that's why when you read your New Testament, you see all of these dramatic and unique signs, these signs for building the church. That's why, again, look with me in chapter 2 and verse 20. It says this. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The church's foundation was the apostles' ministry and the prophetic ministry accompanied by these signs. This is an important thing because today in our generation, we have some people going around who are claiming to be apostles now. They're claiming to be apostles, that the Lord is doing a unique work, and they are apostles. And I'm going to give you a very quick, easy answer to somebody if they come to you and say, I'm an apostle. Here's the answer that you give to them. It's actually a twofold answer. The first one is, no, you're not. You simply say, no, you're not. You're not an apostle. You haven't seen the resurrected Christ. You weren't there from the baptism of John. Until, you are not an apostle. You have not been uniquely commissioned by, the apostle, by Jesus, having seen the resurrected Christ and standing there in his actual physical, visible presence. No, you haven't. Now, he might claim, well, yes, I have. In fact, I heard Pete Keeley was telling me about one of these guys who talks about how he talks to G's, Jesus. He talks to G's in his office every day. I talk to G's every day. I said, dude, if you ever speak like that again, I'm going to deck you. Because number one, you never talk about Jesus like that. And number two, I know you're lying. I'll tell you why. Because if you ever saw Jesus in your office, you'd probably be blind for three days like the Apostle Paul did. That's what happens when you really see Jesus. You're blown away by the majesty and greatness of him. But the second answer to this question is, no, you're not an apostle. You know why? Because the church doesn't need another foundation. The church has a foundation. Like if somebody were to come along, and well, this building is built on a foundation. If somebody were to come along and say, we're going to put another foundation up. I said, why? we got a foundation. No, we're going to build a foundation. Where are you going to build it on the river? Yeah, we're going to build a foundation. And that's who these people are who are claiming to be apostles. Number one, they're not apostles. Number two, they haven't been, they haven't been appointed by Jesus. They haven't seen the resurrected Christ. And they're not evident, they're not witnesses of his resurrection. And in, their ministry is not, and, and the Bible talks about false prophets, false apostles who are going to come up and give false signs. Their signs are not the signs of the apostle. And, never, and finally, we don't need to foundation build again. And see, the same thing, if you're looking at 2.20, applies to the prophets as well. So go back to 4.11. It says this, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, prophets. Prophets were also part of the foundation of the church, the foundation builders of the church. And these people were important. They were, given in, they were given insight from God. They were given revelation from God, especially as the word of God was being, was being written down in the, Old, in the New Testament. These people were very important. In fact, look at chapter 3 and verse 4. Chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, that in the, age, in the other ages were not made known to the sons of men, but as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. These apostles and prophets were given re unique revelation, insight into all that we have in Christ. In fact, what I would present to you is this. We have been studying, it's been one year now, we have been studying the book of Ephesians, one year. We, we have been pouring in our lives into Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 so far. What have we been doing? We have been learning from and sitting at the feet of an apostle. We have been getting apostolic doctrine. 
We have been, we have been being blessed by the foundation that was built by the apostles and prophets. We have been examining that and learning from that because the apostles' word is still here today, not in these living people who claim to be apostles, but in the living word of God that is the apostolic word. And that's the, that's the foundation. That, and Jesus intentionally poured out his spirit, gave us these apostles, gave us these prophets, laid this foundation for the church. Now, the third one here is evangelists, evangelists. And there's a lot of questions to what this means because this word is actually isn't really used very much in the scripture. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 8, we have a man named Philip who actually was one of the original seven deacons in Acts 6 who is an evangelist, and he goes around sharing the good news. Um, and that's the only, the only other time this word is used is actually in the book of Timothy where Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. So commentators question whether this was a foundational office, whether it's still an office and things like that. That's a debate, and I don't have any clear direction on that either way. The final uh, uh, two, office, uh, two offices then are two gifts, as it were, that Paul mentions. There's five. I said four. There's five here. Is pastors and teachers. Some people say pastor slash teacher. Some people say pastors and teachers. Paul used one definite article, the pastors and teachers, not the pastors, the teachers. So that causes people to have all kinds of questions. Um, I believe, though, that we can show in Scripture that there were pastors and teachers and that they both. And so they, they, these, are, these are two offices. The word pastor there is the only time pastor, by the way, is used in the entire New Testament right here, the word pastor. And some Bibles translated shepherd, which I think is a better translation. Unfortunately, in the English language, we have a different uh, word for pastor and shepherd. Um, and so, uh, and that confuses us sometimes because then we have this sort of office thing that goes on here that, that I think takes the focus away from what this person is. This person is a shepherd, okay? And so, shepherds and teachers. Now, every pastor, shepherd, this word is also used verbally to pastor, and it's used synonymously with elder and overseer. So all shepherds are overseers, and overseers are elders, and elders are shepherds. All pastors are shepherds. And, and that office, that office, one must be apt to teach. One must have the ability to teach. That's one of the biblical qualifications for that office. And so one put it well this way. He says, all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. In other words, because you do also have... Uh, teachers within the church, people who are teaching, teaching Bible studies, teaching Sunday school class, teachers, people who are gifted to teach. Now, but notice here in, Ephes in Rome, Ephesians 4.11, the focus that Paul is focusing on here of the gifts, he hasn't mentioned lots of other gifts, helps and, and encouragement and things like that. He hasn't listed those gifts here. He's listing the teaching gifts, the primarily teaching gifts is what he's doing. And what is the purpose for these uh, pastors and teachers? What is the purpose for these these apostles and these prophets in Spanish. What's the purpose? Well, he gives us that in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints. Pastors and teachers equip the saints. The apostolic word equips the saints. And the word there literally means to prepare somebody for a purpose, for a mission, thus equipping, training, getting somebody capable and able to do their mission. And what's the mission? Well, that's the next line. The next, the next phrase, I'm sorry. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The saints are to do the work of ministry. Now, again, we kind of get 
uh, kind of get a little bit sidetracked here with the word ministry because we think of that in terms of the ministry, ministry, things like that. The actual word that Paul used here is diakonia, which means service. It means service. And some of your Bibles may even translate this for works of service. It's how we do minister to one another. We serve one another. So what you should think about when you think of this word ministry is don't think of a, of a cleric with his collar backwards. Think of Jesus with a, ro- with a towel wrapped around him and washing people's feet. That's how the word is used in the scripture. And so this is service, ministry, caring for one another, ministering to one another, using your gifts for one another. And then notice the next four. For the edifying of the body of Christ. For the building up of the body of Christ. Edifying, that word means to, to build up. It's, it's actually a, a construction word. To build up. We get our word edifice from that. To build up the body of Christ. The whole body of Christ. The, to, and that's, that's what these gifts are for. So, so again, look at what's happening. Jesus gives apostles and he gives prophets and we have the apostolic word. He gives evangelists, he gives pastors and he gives teachers and they're to equip the saints. They're to get the saints prepared for their ministry, enable them to do their ministry and the saints then do the work of the ministry. You know, we don't hire the pastor to do all the work of the ministry. He's to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry, when it's being done, is building up and edifying the body of Christ. The body of Christ grows stronger. The body of Christ is built up. And then notice what happens, verse 13. Till we all come, and that word actually means to arrive at a destination. Till we all arrive at the destination. And what is that destination? Well, notice what he says. He mentions two things. To the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unity is one, and to a perfect man, and I don't like that translation, To a, because as soon as you use the word perfect, people are like, oh, I can't be perfect. That's not what that means. It means mature, complete. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The teaching gifts are given to equip the saints. They do the work of the ministry. They use their gifts that they have been given. Their work of ministry edifies and builds up the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, as it's built up and edified, grows in unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. And we don't have the time to deal with those today. I'm going to deal with unity a little bit today. We'll deal with maturity in the weeks ahead. So what is the end? Unity and maturity. So these teaching, equipping, gifts, and ministry bring about unity and maturity. Now, what what is unity? What is unity? What does he mean by that? Well, I I don't want you just to think that, well, that means everybody gets along. It does mean that. But that's not the only thing that it means. Unity is something way deeper. And when we get into marriage, we're going to get into this. But in body life, we need to get into this. And we've already talked about union with Christ. I think you should think more of unity as oneness. A, a closeness, a, a oneness, a, a togetherness, a, a, that kind of unity. That's, that's, that's how it's being used. And Paul's already talked about this. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. He says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says there is one, and that's why I said unity, we need to think of it as oneness. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. He's talking about this unity. The equipping, teaching, ministry of the faith is to lead to this unity. And what is it unity about? What's the unity about? Look at verse 13 again. To the unity of the faith, the faith, and by using that phrase, the faith, he means 
not, not, not the exercise of faith as much as he thinks of the objective reality of what we believe, the faith of once delivered to the saints, Jude said. There's unity of the faith. There's unity in what we agree that we believe upon. And then notice the next one, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now here I believe that there is an objective reality to this, and I think that's what Ephesians 1, 1 to 3, 1, 2, and 3 is all about. All of the blessings and all of the great things that we have in Christ. But I think there's also a subjective and experiential aspect to this as well, that as the gifts are being used, as the saints are being trained, as the saints are ministering to one another, as this body of believers is coming together in unity, there's a growing experiential experience of Christ Jesus himself. And I think that's where Paul is getting at in chapter 3 and verse 19, where he says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God, the length and width, drip, breadth, and such like that. Now, let's apply this to ourselves, and let's just talk about how this works in the few minutes that we have left. How does this work out? How does all of this teaching that we just got here, how does it work out in the church? How does it work out? Well, let me, let me try to explain how this works out but I think you already know. I think you already know. I'll tell you why I think you already know. By God's grace and God's mercy, I speak humbly here. I don't want to be a fool and boast. By God's grace and mercy, you are in a very healthy, well-instructed church. And because of that, you're actually seeing Ephesians 4 work out. See, here's how it works. When you're in a well-instructed church where pastors and teachers are doing their job, for instance, we just spent the last year, I hope this has been, 2023, if you look back on it, I hope that one of the things that you saw, because I certainly saw in my life, that it was a rich, rich year for me spiritually because of our study of the book of Ephesians, okay? That's what it means to be in a well-instructed church. We worked hard to work through Ephesians. And when you do that, when the pastors and teachers are doing their job in equipping the saints, the saints are growing in their knowledge of the apostolic word. And the saints are saying, wow, wow. I was chosen before the foundation of the world to be in union with Christ by grace. Wow. That blows my mind. I am in union with Jesus. It's like we're married. It's like we're one. It's like he doesn't make a decision or a move or anything without considering me, my well-being, my good. He does all things. He left heaven for the church. He left heaven for us. He died on the cross for us. He rose again to give us victory over death. He, he reigns in all things. All things have been put under his feet for us, for the church. He's coming for us. He's pouring out his gifts upon us. I'm in union with him. I lived with him. I died with him. I was crucified with him. I was raised with him. I have this union with him. Wow. 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 He was executed for me. He was risen for me. He called me to himself. He forgave me of all of my sins. He gave, washed me through the blood of his son. God has done all of this for me. Wow. And as you... Sitting under good, solid biblical teaching in a healthy church, 
the apostolic word, the gifts that Christ has given through pastors and teachers is edifying you and building you up and you're growing and growing in these things, what's going to happen is, is you will begin to grasp the width and the bright length and the greatness of the glory and majesty and grace of God towards you in Christ Jesus. And what should happen then is you should love Jesus. You should love him, and you should have a loving relationship with him and know that, and you should talk to him, and you'll experience him, and you'll share him with others, and he becomes your chief delight, and he becomes your greatest motivation in life, and he becomes the greatest and deepest commitment that you have, and you experience joy, that joy that Chris preached on last week in that wonderful sermon, that joy. And then what happens when you meet somebody else who has been experiencing Christ like that? What happens when you meet somebody who has genuinely been experiencing Christ like that? You immediately feel connected to them. You immediately feel close to them. They love the same things you love. They love him. They delight in him. They rejoice in what they have in him. They're amazed at their privileges. They're amazed at the grace that has touched them. They want to talk about Jesus. They love Jesus. You love Jesus. They delight in Jesus. You delight in Jesus. And dear friends, it doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter what sex they are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic status they have. Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, barbarian, Scythian, pulses. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what their politics are. It doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. It doesn't matter. Because the most important thing about both of you is important to both of you. And you recognize that with each other. And people begin to live that out. People who are touched by the grace of Jesus and by the, what Jesus has done and how Jesus has served them and how Jesus died for them. Those people touched by that, transformed by that, become humble people. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, live out the calling by which you're called. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. They become humble people, not a bunch of supercharged personalities who like to push their opinion and push their agenda and push their way. By the way, if you get into a church where all that's happening, I'm going to say two things about that. Number one, that's probably coming from the top. That's probably because the pastors and teachers are supercharged personalities who are pushing their way and who haven't been humbled by Jesus. And then that runs into the church and the church has all these super powerful, supercharged people who like to fight and get their way and push their way around the church. Let me urge you to do something. Run. Get out of there. Find humble, godly people. And, then be, and find people who, rather than that, are ministering to each other, are concerned about each other, are pouring into each other, are using their gifts to each other. You see, Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 7 that each one of us, grace has been given to, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every one of you have gifts. And those gifts are for each other, to minister to one another and to help one another and to, to build one another up and to be together, to be together. And this is why for the church, it's very important that we be together, that we might minister to each other and use each other's gifts and build each other up and build each other up. And you know what builds each other up? Sometimes it's not something that, that seems, oh, well, what's my gift? What do I do? Sometimes it's just showing up. 
Could you imagine what it's like if you came in here Sunday morning and you sang? Oh, well, I've done it. I've done it for two weeks. I've just been a mile away for two weeks because I was sick in my living room alone singing. It's a horrible experience. <laughs> number one, because I'm a horrible singer. And number two, I so wanted to be here. I could actually see my seat on that camera. I wanted to be here because I wanted to hear you sing. I wanted to have the ministry of people singing together. You see, that's the ministry one to another. Sitting around and being with people who bring a Bible and open it up and are studying it together, and you look around and you see them doing it, that ministers to each other. That builds up the body of Christ. Being with people who are trying to work out godliness in their life, in their homes and in their, in their relationships and in their families, in their extended families, in their marriages, in their, in their workplace, in their neighborhoods, trying to live this out. People who are fighting temptation throughout the week and overcoming. People who are, who are growing in grace. People who are growing in in perseverance, people who are, who are facing challenges, people who are facing struggles, being around people who are role models, godly people who are ahead of you in Christ and who you can pattern your life after and who are an encouragement because you see, being around people who have gone through great trials and difficulties and here they are praising and worshiping God and you know what they've gone through and you see them and what an encouragement. It's the encouragement of one another, hearing words of encouragement, people saying that they'll pray for you, people locking arms with you and coming near you, you having a baby and people flooding you with food. All of that is part of the vibrant body of Christ that has made it essential that the body of Christ be the body of Christ. Here's the point, dear ones. You will never grow in grace apart from the body of Christ. And we're going to get into that more and more. You will never flourish in your Christian life apart from the body of Christ. Oh, your podcast may be cool. Your celebrity preachers that you preach may be helpful. But you will never flourish without this living dynamic of the body of Christ. And that's why Jesus says... Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Gather together. Dear ones, I hope you understand the great privilege that you have. You're about to experience it right there. You are going to take bread, put in your hands by Jesus, who says, this represents my body. Now I want you to eat it. I want you to take it into your body to show you that we are one. My death upon the Christ was for you. Take it. I don't want you to just smell it. I don't want you to just touch it and look at it, and I don't want you to put it back in the plate. I want you to ingest it. This is my blood. This represents my blood. And I want you to feel and know that this blood was for you. And so I don't want you to just look at it. I don't want you to just smell it. I don't want you to put it back. I want you to take it into yourself because I am yours. There is a union between you and I. We are fellowshipping together in this meal. I am yours. You are mine. Dear ones, what a privilege. What a privilege. Christ is building his church. Praise God, he's doing it here as well. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for the grace that you have given us, that you have united us with you and united us with your body of believers. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've given us. And thank you for each other. Thank you that we're not walking alone. Thank you for this dear body of believers. And thank you that what we just read in our Bibles, we have experience in this place. Thank you. Thank you for the body of Christ. Bless us now as we gather together as one body.
and share a cup and share the bread. Bless us now, we pray in your precious name. Amen.